Oh, should we go down there? It looks really sweet. This oh. little grove. Do you know, it looks very us, Katie. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You're right, it looks very us. It does, because um, it's not too boisterous. It looks like the front cover of a self-help book. <laughs> this week on Walking the Dog, I took Ray for a stroll in Peckham with actor, writer and comedian Katie Wicks. Katie grew up with Labradors, so I didn't know what she'd make of my strange Ewok Raymond but it turned out to be a match made in heaven. I was so excited to meet Katie as I've been a fan of hers for years, but I was especially excited to chat to her about the forthcoming series of Stathlet's Flats in which she plays the utterly hilarious Carol. It's honestly the best depiction of a nightmare work colleague you'll ever see. We also chatted about Katie's wonderful book, Delicacy, which I really urge you to read. It's such an honest and just beautifully written memoir, which touches on a lot of the stuff we talked about her childhood in Wales, her ongoing journey really towards self-acceptance, and it also documents the multiple losses she went through not long ago and the legacy that's left. And just like Katie, it's sensitive and thoughtful, but it's also really funny because Katie just has funny bones. She's incapable of not being hilarious. As you've probably worked out, I love this woman and so did Ray. We're officially friends now, whether she likes it or not. Please do check out Series 3 of Stathlet's Flats later this month on Channel 4 and also do read Delicacy. You won't regret it. I really hope you enjoy our chat. I'll shut up now. Here's Katie and Raymond. Where are we going to go, by the way, Katie? Oh, yes. So Peckham Rye is the nice park area um, and it's kind of straight up there. Lovely. For, I don't know, about six minutes or something. So I, I, I live really far up there but I my I'm in a hotel because my boiler broke so I've had no heating or hot water so I've had to stay in, in a hotel in Greenwich for two nights and it happened on it happened, I can't remember what night it happened anyway but it was quite late and I thought oh, sod this I can't I'm not going to be able to sleep in this temperature so the only hotel I could find was basically in a sort of like within the O2 arena <laughs> So I'm staying in a really weird hotel in Greenwich. It's like you're like back under in the It's so yeah. <laughs> It's like I've got to limber up for take that at like 5am every day or something. Um, yeah, it's just up here. It's probably, it might be a longer walk than I, oh, no than I have in my, my head. Well, I was going to put Raymond down, but he's such a slow walker, Katie. I might wait until we get him to the park because he takes so long. He... He treats walking like he's sort of on Oxford Street looking at clothes. <laughs> no, he does have a very regal vibe. Oh, look, this is a proper dog. He's like a small emperor that doesn't want to be, doesn't want to exert himself. That's the vibe I get off Raymond. We always had black Labradors. Oh, did you? Growing up. Yeah, so I'm very much a dog, a dog person. But sadly, it's just, it's not very practical for me to have one in London. You know what it's like? There's a doggy. Oh, oh. Yeah, tell me, tell me the, the origin of Raymond. So the story of Raymond, I like him, Katie. You know those dogs that look a bit like they could be in white snake or something, like heavy metal hair? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's just like the Dimitrius dog. Dogs are just like that. This is, oh yeah, Jamie Dimitri, who's been on this podcast, who's your Stathlet's Fats yeah. colleague. We've just finished series three and, oh my God, it's, it's the best, yeah. It's... It's, I mean, I'm kind of obsessed with it. This is embarrassing. I've never been so obsessed with anything I've been involved with, like a fan. I'm such a uber fan. It's such a relief to be in something you actually find funny. There's been many times I've just <laughs> taken the money and, you know, made huge artistic compromises, so. It's so good. Well, I want to talk loads about that. But, um, well, I'm going to introduce it formally, but I might wait until we get into <laughs> okay. the grass. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like I'm can. walking you Alan Partridge style on the motorway. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, like, where are they? <laughs> We've come to the M25 today to walk around wearing driving gloves as we walk on the dual carriageway. <laughs> come on, Ray. Cross the road. Oh, God, the way my mum used to speak to the dogs, it's so funny. Because I do it with my brother's dogs. He has the same dogs now as we had when we were little so he's trying to sort of carry on the legacy one of them just died actually and the other one you can imagine is in, in like deep mourning and it's awful to see animals but also so i should say this but also i um 
when there was mourning going on in the house, the dogs were so sensitive to it. They were unbelievable. And the amount of times, and I, with my brother's dogs, I, wasn't, I didn't really have a particularly special bond with them, but the amount of times they would just come and check on me if I was crying, or they'd clamber up on me at, you know, at bed, at, at night on the bed. They were really sensitive to it, particularly one of them. They really are, you know. I think they really pick up on moods, don't they, That's and cool. emotions. She looks very nice, cool. cool, like a plat, a see-through mat. Yeah. And your own music just blasting out. I love the fact... It's like being in Brooklyn, for God's sake. <laughs> and I like that bikes have become cool, even though I'm yeah. too frightened to ride oh, them. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm shit at riding bikes. I can't ride it, really. No, I can't, really. I, used to, I spent years lying, even with friends <laughs> as an adult, Katie. I thought you were going to say even with stabilisers. <laughs> Come on, Ray. Let's walk with Katie. Yeah. So this was the main park I'd come to during lockdown when we were allowed our hour out, because I don't have a garden, sadly. And it's um, Peckham Rye. Yeah, but it got, you can imagine it, you know, it was so densely populated that it didn't really feel like you were in an outdoor space and you couldn't really socially distance very easily. Oh, I, look at Raymond in action. <laughs> Good to see his, his full flow. You say an action, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like a centipede, doesn't he? <laughs> he? He does have, like, um, it, his bum looks like his front a little bit, which I like as well. So I'm going to formally introduce you. Yes. I'm so thrilled. We're oh, in Peckham, and I'm with the very wonderful Katie Wicks, and I'm introducing her to my dog, Raymond. What do you think so far? Hi, Raymond. Yeah, I mean, I just I love that we have the same sort of hair. Come <laughs> on, <Hi>, Raymond. <laughs> do you... Talk me through your history with dogs, then. You don't have a dog. Yeah, no, it's... I mean, I, I'd love to, but um, it's just a bit impractical. It's so many things, I think. It's like, you know, living in a flat, not having outdoor space, being self-employed, it feels like you can't make a plan sort of week to week because, you know, everything just... You know, I could suddenly get an email saying you have to go to such and such on certain days. So that, I don't know, I just, I feel like it would make me too anxious to have one. Yeah. As much as I'd love one, as much as it would calm me down. But I grew up with dogs. We always had dogs. Like some of my earliest memories are the the dogs we had. And, um, uh, yeah, always black Labradors. And there was one in particular. We had four, I think, because there's two that died and then another one. And um, there there was really, there was two black Labradors called Hattie. Hattie was amazing. She had such an extraordinary temperament. I've never known a dog like it. And I don't know whether she just kind of imbued the energy of the females in the family. She was very gentle, very intelligent, really sort of knew what was going on and just very sort of human-like. And she was kind of very, yeah, just a really... She never barked, like never, ever once heard her bark. It was really, really? surprising. And then we adopted... I mean, this is in a way a whole kind of nature versus nurture debate because we adopted another dog which had been abandoned in a quarry and this dog just never got over it. It was, you know, even after sort of 10 years of being in this loving family and, you know, being given all the security, it just never, ever really could trust or its nervous system just never recovered. I think from just like the noises of the quarry. And yeah. Stuff. So it was quite interesting to see this played out, how trauma, you know. Yeah. What place that you're alive in these two dogs. Um, and then one of my siblings has also now two black Labradors and uh, yeah as I was saying which one of them just died and to see the other one in full mourning is, is heartbreaking Oh, do you think they really can you tell that they sense yeah, I the mean, loss I'm, I, don't, I mean I don't see them every day but from, from it's, it's really clear that the other dog is, is very confused why there's this absence and thrown and kind of making this pining noise on the spot where the other dog used to sleep oh wow quite a sort of posh looking dog like an aristocratic looking dog has come over what, what are you saying about Ray Katie <laughs> <laughs> you're saying that dog is slumming it Ray's just not moving so funny. Ray does a weird thing 
he sort of freezes. I don't know whether it's social anxiety. Yeah, I really relate. (laughs) This other dog's so confident, and it's got like a pink ribbon around its middle. Sort of looks like a sort of like a gift from Harrods or something, doesn't it? It's really fluffed up. It's kind of like a a Spitz. It's that Pomeranian colour, I think. It's a Spitz or something. But yeah, I think I only know about Labradors because that's the only dog we ever had, and now it's like continued as a tradition. I mean, it's very much like they're they're very like they're all pack dogs, aren't they? I, it, it, all, I mean, my main memory is that the dog just always had to be where someone was, always in on the action. So my mum was really, you know, into dog training. What was she called? That woman that everyone was was it the sort of boss? Barbara Woodhouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember her sort of talking about her, and um, she got really she did a pretty good job. That these dogs were pretty. Um, if, I think if anything they were a little too obedient it kind of worried me <laughs> that they'd been sort of brutalised into behaving so you grew up with your Labradors yeah. and your family and this was in Wales yeah it was just a, it was like a sort of village outside of just half an hour outside of Cardiff I guess tell me about your mum and your dad well they Met in the 70s, I guess. They went to um, drama school in Birmingham. And um, my dad was, like, from, you know, like a really poor area in, um, like, sort of near Swansea. And um, mum was a bit more sort of middle class. So they... I think even, like, my mum's parents didn't want... didn't, like, approve of their relationship. And they sort of ran off and got married in secret. And they acted for a bit. They were both really funny and I never really got to see them act, but, like, I think they would have really made, you know, amazing actors. Why didn't they act, Oh, they had, because they had kids. And yeah. they moved back home, back home to Cardiff and had to get normal jobs. And how was that? Dream over. Yeah. Um, so it's not... Like, someone asked me the other day whether... <laughs> Uh, when I said they were actors, someone had like... I mean, they were actors for, you know, a couple of years or whatever, but yeah. someone asked me the other day if they'd sort of help me, and it was, like, laughable. <laughs> it wasn't that kind of thing. It wasn't like, a, the, you know, the Red Graves <laughs> dynasty. <laughs> like, no, definitely not, you know. We weren't sort of wealthy. They didn't have, like, connections or anything. They, they went sort of back, backstage, and sort of my dad worked backstage in a theatre then for the rest of his life, and my mum, like, worked, started a dance company that's still going um so they were they were really my whole family were all creative and and uh you know artistic so in some ways they were they were really understanding when I sort of said look I want to you know write and perform and stuff um I think they they put me off only because they knew how hard it was and I think maybe they expected me to fail (laughs) which is no reflection of you know what they thought of me but I think they just thought it's really tough um so when I didn't they were they were kind of, particularly my mum was, you know, was living vicariously a little through my success, which is fine, but never in a way that felt, you know, problematic. Um, so, yeah, they, uh, and they were very much, you know, still in love and together oh. till the end. In fact, my, my, my dad went first and uh, I think my mum got uh, her cancer diagnosis nine days after dad died, God. which was just hell, obviously, but... I think that she, <coughs> she, he had dementia and she looked after him for so long that she made herself ill. Yeah. So really it was kind of the, the price of love that finished her off in many ways. Um, she, it was really difficult because we could sort of see that he was struggling, but she, I think she was kind of keeping it from people because she didn't want to put him in a home. I think because it can be... Um, I think people go downhill quite quickly sometimes which isn't a criticism of those places but I, I think it I think it's just um yeah it's just what happens isn't it and I, I think it's almost the lack of responsibility or stimulus or having to sort of attempt to be normal but in the end you know it, it social services had to get involved and they just sort of said you know dad had nearly set fire to the house again mum was uh starting to get ill she could barely move so it was just a disaster really and this and was literally only a couple of years ago really, yeah wasn't so it? I've had like three deaths three major deaths in like three years pretty much starting in 2017 
Um, so yeah, it just went bang, bang, bang. Um, so yeah, it is still quite recent with the with them all. Um, but yeah, like I think I've, um, I'm sort of surprised how functional I am, even though it's only been sort of two and a half years since the last one. It changes you forever, doesn't it? But yeah, I I think yeah, I think it's just dealing with one death would be bad enough. But I think that's that that was. That was the most difficult aspect, I think. I, I felt like I, my brain couldn't, just couldn't take it in. Mm. It was too too much too soon. Oh, yeah. look at this little sausage dog. And um, I think, and also with, with my best friend, that was the first death. It was the suddenness of it. And so it was really the shock. I had yeah. to deal with the shock before I even got to the grief, I'd say. That was about six months of dealing with that. And... I've never really understood shock in that, like, almost like a medical sense before, where you, you, your brain cannot, you simply can't function. It's like you, you've been completely short-circuited, and that was very... You're definitely in the learning phase, I apologise. <laughs> oh, don't worry, my, my, my dog's never made it out of the learning phase, which is why he's on the lead. He's never made it out. Um, and that, I'd never really experienced that before because with my parents there was at least some preparation but even with preparation it's still incredibly shocking profoundly surreal experience that someone yeah. was living and then they weren't but yeah. yeah with my friend it was very it was really violent and um what happened and that was yeah I, I don't even know there's some days I don't even know who I'm grieving and at what pace and in some ways, I've had to shut what happened to my friend away quite quickly because suddenly I had to be a carer. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Do you think you're, you've still got, you've still got sort of things to deal with that you haven't? I felt, I feel like grief needs space and it needs time. <coughs> yeah. And when you lose a lot of people, as you did, in one go like that, you're robbed of time, and that can be quite difficult because it interrupts the, the natural process. Yeah. Yeah, is no, what absolutely. I think. So that is really important that your friends and people you work with and people who care about you, they sort of know that, you know, it's going to be a while. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and that's okay. It doesn't mean you won't be fine on a day-to-day level. But the thing I found hard was sometimes people would say, what's wrong? Yeah. And I sort of think, because I'd burst into tears yeah. at the slightest thing. And... I just learned to accept that after a while. I thought, oh, no, I just cry a lot now and I feel very deeply. Yeah, I, I, I think there's, this, there, there's crying I recognise as grief crying now, mm. which I never really sort of had before. And it's a completely different type of crying where I'd almost have to wait till everyone had gone out because the noises I would make yeah. were so intense and it comes right from the belly. And I mean, I guess it's like wailing. And I did plenty of wailing, but, you know, I'd kind of do it into pillows. I, I remember reading an article about a guy who used to drive somewhere in his car on his own so he could properly wail for sort of half an hour. And um, I think I did that once in a hotel room, but even then I was like trying to mute, you know, I was trying to keep the sound down. But I would always feel better after the, the wail. It's, it's um, yeah, it's so sort of, such an innate noise. Um, but also, I think it, it it still manifests itself in quite weird ways. I think that that's the thing I wish I'd known that there's this whole menu of stuff to choose from, um, which is not just sort of feeling sad or missing the person. It like you know all the physical symptoms I had to do with stress and grief, anxiety. Sometimes it was more like a panic attack than anything, or or being obsessed with something else to try and distract myself and also I, I'm, I'm still not good with silences and I used to be like a really good meditator and was really into it and now I'm like god it's a real emotional privilege to be able to meditate <laughs> I'm not ready yet because I can't face that much reflection all at once yes so I, I'm always sort of filling filling the day with noise and I'm still doing that and that, that's definitely a hangover yeah from the, some of the images I have in my head like flashbacks I know it's tough though because people are so brilliant and I think people are luckily understanding more and more you know about yeah. loss and I I certainly I wanted to I want to talk a bit more about your childhood as well because 
I've just read your absolutely brilliant book. Oh, thank you. Delicacy. I really urge people to read it because. Oh, thank you. It's I try so very hard. <laughs> I love I try. <laughs> I mean, it's the most I've ever worked on anything in my life. It nearly killed me. I feel like I was going to have a breakdown writing that. I love oh, I tried very hard. I did. The last time I heard someone say that was when someone congratulated Jurgen Klinsmann for being nice about the England team during the lot and he went thank you I tried very hard. So that but delicacy is essentially it's really interesting because you use the theme of cake within it in a sort of Proustian way I'm going to say. Yeah no totally I mean I've I'd never finished it but I've read, I've read the first book um but yeah the cake is this kind of it's sort of scaffolding really and and very quickly i just you know i just oh should we go down there it looks really sweet this oh. little grove do you know it looks very us katie doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> You're right it looks very us it does because um, it's not too boisterous no it look it, it looks like the front cover of a self-help book <laughs> About lo- like about your path to loss or something. The road less travel until <laughs> these two cackling extroverts turn up. Um, yeah, I I I had all these kind of moments, stories I wanted to write about, and I didn't know how to collect them all together. Um, <clears throat> I knew I didn't want it to be the normal kind of memoir, and really, it has nothing to do with TV or anything. That's like deliberately left out because I just thought that was kind of the least interesting thing to me. Um, and also, really quickly, I realised I had total creative freedom and I wanted to try and, you know, write something that was a little more poetic and thoughtful, um, which I've wanted to do for so long, but I haven't really had the confidence to say, this is me, <laughs> this is what I want, this is what I like. Um, because you don't always get an opportunity to do that if you're trying to just, you know, get a TV script made or whatever, which is, it's just a different, you know, approach to writing. Not, one's not better than the other, but... I I wanted to like prose allowed me to yeah just go into sort of into a deep kind of reflection about it all um, and yeah Kate was this emerged as a kind of theme and I sort of worried it was a bit twee and and perhaps it's like almost misleading that you don't think the book will have the darkness that it has but then it, it sort of became like almost writing against the kind of sweetness of cake I wanted it to very quickly be about how I kind of hate it cake is a kind of it's a sort of ultra femme slightly patronising yeah. like fluffy object that always seemed to be there when actually there was something really painful happening and you know I know this sounds ridiculous but I was watching Married at First Sight the other day the UK one yeah I've only watched the Australian one which I absolutely fucking love the Australians um, deliver more on the bad behaviour <laughs> oh amazing but you know what was interesting they had the boys had a dinner party and then the girls did and it really struck me Katie that the men had these platters with meat and cheese on it <laughs> and the women had cupcakes yeah, yeah. and glasses of pink champagne <laughs> Awful. I like That's the platters. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to eat cake it's and like, champagne because um, I'll throw up and be lightheaded. <laughs> I'd like meat. Yeah, I'd like the cheese. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, actually, I think this was in the book at one point, and then I, it, I took it out because there was no obvious place for it. But I've, um, my sort of, my group of uh, two, three really close female friends, they're quite sort of unconventional. They're quite, I suppose they're quite alpha women in some ways, and one of them's actually non binary. So, but whenever we're in a group on our own, and we're maybe we're talking about something, you know, fascinating or to do with feminism or something, a waiter will always come over and sort of say, hi, hi, ladies, do you want a cocktail or something? And we'll always, like, look at, like, you know, it's really sort of patronising, like we're in an episode of Sex and the City, and I always want to think, like, well, you wouldn't say that to a group of men. Yeah. You yeah. wouldn't offer us, like, you know, I don't know, it, 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 it's really bizarre to suddenly go, <laughs> oh, we were just talking as like you know a group of people and suddenly we sort of forget that we've been like gendered and then have this sort of thing projected onto us where we were just talking about we were just having a nice time talking so uh, your brilliant book talks about your childhood and I want to go back again back in time to Wales and what sort of a child you were growing up well I was 
I think the main, the, the word that was always on all school reports was sensitive. It was just always the, the thing it came back to. I remember my school reports were all like, not that, you know, it's funny that my mind first went to school reports as if that's any indication of what you're like. But um, I remember it was very sort of like, it's quiet, sensitive, kind of thorough, thoughtful shit at PE. That was always like the vibe that kind of followed me around. Um, you know, could spend hours in a creative task, really happy. Um, had a really rich, fancy life from the off. Total kind of dreamlike state. Um, and I was incredibly shy. I'd have a sort of selective mutism where I wouldn't like to speak outside of the house. And um, I had it until about maybe five years ago. Um, where I'd suddenly get this like flash of like intense self-consciousness and would stop speaking. Um, and I've had to really just grow out of it and fight it, but I, I'd get this kind of, um, just this kind of closed, clo- shutting down. I've always had this... Um, I've always had this, uh, this kind of weird shutdown thing that I do. Um, yeah, which I, 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 I has, has stopped, but it's taken a long time, I think. I'm just building up my resilience to whatever shame is going on. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was like, I think I was quiet, had quite an even temperament. And um, I just remember the world was a very confusing, strange place. And, uh, but I was just very sort of creative. And you were close to your... Folks, I yeah, we were really, really close, really close. And my, my dad didn't really like people visiting. He was, like, really, um, I think, had quite a lot of shame himself. And um, he didn't really like people. You know, his dream would be to sort of live on a cliff in the middle of nowhere. And my mum was incredibly social and, and um, sort of charming. But they were both very funny, very funny. All my family are funny, so... I thought it was completely normal and I'd go to other people's houses and stuff and I'd be like, their mum wasn't very funny. Like, <laughs> that's weird. It's like I've heard Amy Winehouse say that she just thought everyone sang because her family sang. It was like that, but just being really sort of entertaining. So in some ways I don't really value being funny because I think <laughs> it's like, I sort of think it's not even anything. I, I just think it's like genetic. I just think it's... Yeah. It's in my DNA. Like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel... I don't get that excited when people say, I think you're funny. Like, some people I really see, they desperately need... Yes, I see that. That. I and, of course, that. it's nice. It's powerful. It's like a power to have... It, it was my first taste of power was being funny, absolutely. But I didn't have it, and then what the hell I'd do. But I think because it was just part of my family, I sort of... And also, they, they were... They had a sort of slightly different public way to they were at home. Mm. So I would, I would sort of associate being funny with almost being a bit people-pleasy and um, almost, with my mum sometimes, almost out of anxiety. She would sort of go into this really funny mode, which would be so funny and disarming. And I, I did it throughout my 20s, definitely. Whenever I got nervous, I would just start, like, mm. monologuing and <laughs> like before... So now I slightly, you know, all those years of therapy, where you're, I'm sort of being this real authentic person all the time. And I think I've gone the other way and I've got really unfunny, which is a shame, <laughs> a real shame. I think you articulated in your book how I think I probably felt without even realising it. You know, until I read your book that all these moments, and I'm sure a lot of women experience that, you sort of thought, oh my God, yes, that happened to me and that happened to me. And, yeah. Um, to do with our bodies. To do with, yeah. To do with just this strange internal shame that you carry yeah, around. Yeah, From a really young age. Yeah, it, it's such a, it's sadly such a sort of normal part of the female experience, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I think I had this sense, well, I didn't realise till I think I was much older and then when, when the, the, the chapter that I briefly write about consent, I think the reason I 
And it's not like a great sort of, you know, essay. It's just, it was a way to try and articulate that. I think if you've grown up and been fat shamed from a young age and been, um, what's the word, like objectified from a young age, I had this really strong sense that my body wasn't really mine. That, that was the message I wanted to get across. So then I think in my 20s, if I found myself in a situation with a man, I didn't know how to advocate for my body or for what I wanted or didn't want. And I think that's directly linked to having been fat shamed. And I just thought it was interesting because um, there's an amazing book Aubrey Gordon wrote, which is a lot more looking at the relationship between fat and consent. And I thought, yeah, there's, that's really interesting. It's definitely part of, in the mix of... I mean, well, you know, without sort of victim blaming, but it's definitely in the mix of um, having a body that you think is worth worthy to stand up for. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, yeah. It, it definitely, you know, I've been so many different um, sizes and I've under-eaten and over-eaten and, and finally I think I've conquered it through a lot of, like, hard work and therapy, but that, that set up a, a, a relationship food in my body definitely I, I think I was about seven when I was first fat shamed and it's really hard I remember absorbing that message so deeply um, and I think I have to fight it every day to just mm. um, just get to a kind of I don't know average level of self-esteem but it's it's tricky because I also have days where I think oh, I don't want to fall into that sort of boring um, sort of female paradigm of oh we all hate our bodies and I don't like join in with conversations anymore where people are sort of going oh god I hate my thighs and then someone goes yeah me too like I don't I don't do it because I can't speak to my body like that <laughs> do you feel sometimes my similar thing I had I would find um, women talking about getting older yeah, that's and how the they look terrible, and we, I look so old. I've refused to join in those conversations yeah, now. That's great. And, and I knew the message was it's not right for you to be okay, you're breaking the rules. Yeah, yes. And, I, and when <laughs> I gave up trying to change my body, I, I think it was breaking the rules. It was like a huge taboo that I'm not trying to improve <laughs> it or change it, I'm just trying to be. Oh, is this a little child? Like, his dad is saying, please don't get in the mud. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hello. That's my dog. Do you like him? He's a bit silly, isn't he? Do you like him? Not sure. <laughs> I know. He's a grower, I promise. Bye nice bye. to meet you. Bye bye. Oh, oh thank you. Oh, it's okay. Is that for the dog? Oh. I think he was throwing the bread at the dog. <laughs> I, I think. He threw the bread down in some sort of protest. Should we sit here? It's so nice walking and talking. It's one of my favourite things to do with friends, you know. Can I have some of my banana bread? Oh, I've got that ball of... Oh, did I give you the ball? Cacao. <laughs> I bought yeah, Katie yeah. the cacao. And we'll give Ray a treat. I, got, I got really got into trouble for eating on a podcast, though. People were like, about seven people complained. Oh, God. I was Hello. eating a carrot. Look at this, Katie. I'll give Ray a treat. Come on. So tell me, were you quite academic? Were you popular? I... I... I was... I knew I was bright. I got very overwhelmed in lessons there was a lot of anxiety and I didn't always listen and like I went to I mean you know I did the whole thing got good A levels went to uni so I was more academic than my brother um, but then also in my group of friends I think I was the only one who didn't go to Oxbridge so I think compared to them I felt like I'd fucked it I had um, such anxiety from such a young age and I just didn't listen I was kind of overwhelmed and I went to the comp down the road you know it's big classes like 32 or whatever and I think if I'd gone to you know in, in different circumstances I think I would have been helped and coached a bit more but mm. I remember 
just finding it overwhelming to take in the information somehow. I've never really known what that was about. And it's funny, like I started having guitar lessons in lockdown and I really, really loved it. But I really reverted back to how I was in school. I would feel myself get... Um, the, the teacher, I'm like reading music and he's going into all the sort of music theory stuff, which is really complex. And I would feel myself get this kind of that weird anxiety and I just stopped listening. So I don't know what that's about, but I suddenly realised that if I if I'd voiced that, then maybe I would have got help with that. Um, it was like all the noise and the like the the boys behind me mm. making. I just remember that it wasn't like an environment where you felt like you could pay attention. And because I was the first person to go to university from my family, it didn't feel like um, that anybody was really good at sort of you know helping with homework. They were, they were bright in their own way, I think, but they hadn't, like, gone to uni or anything. So, so there, there wasn't that sort was of academic, academic structure at home. Yeah, where... I think I did pretty well. I just, I knew that I understood things, but I wasn't, you know... Um, I was just kind of off in a, in a daydream a lot of the time. I was very good at fitting in. I just, like, chameleon-like would kind of fit in. But I had, like, a really... I think by... By sort of sixth form, I had my like core group that I'm still kind of friends with, and it was all great. That was like a really good time. Um, but I, I, I think I wasn't really funny till I was about 15. Really? I think I didn't really speak much. No, I was just really overwhelmed. I mean, I, I remember feeling like we were a bit different because um, of what my parents did and stuff, and um, and. Uh, it, it, I guess it just felt different because, like, in the evening after school and stuff, like, I'd go with my mum to the theatre where Dad worked and we'd, like, wait by stage door. And it's still there in, in Cardiff now, this big theatre. And I'd get to meet, like, these kind of random celebs at stage door. I'd be, like, seven or eight and they'd, like, you know, ruffle my hair and talk to me. And I remember sort of thinking it was a weird thing the next day when people would be like what you know I watched EastEnders I'd almost feel a bit weird about it I'd be like oh I met you know Peter Andre (laughs) whoever it was and I sort of like sat in a lighting box and was allowed to press this button that made the stage go a different colour or whatever it was and and also I remember because my mum worked for this 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 um dance company so a lot of instead of babysitting I'd have to sit in rehearsals and watch these these like it was like a contemporary dance company so it was very kind of like you know quite avant-garde so again I just it just felt really different you know and weird and the school was like pretty rough and I just remember sort of feeling like I had to fit in and my I had like a stronger accent I don't have it now at all but I sounded more like Charlotte Church and just tried to seem like normal you know and not draw attention to yourself and it, there was definitely a culture almost of don't look like you're trying too hard or you'd be called a swat. So I think even that was part of it, that I didn't ever put my hand up in class and say what the answer was, even if I knew it. There was a bit in the book, Katie, which, where you tell a joke and you interrupt this... Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You interrupt a guy's <laughs> punchline, and it's a fascinating moment because it's about, to me, it was about you... It's sort of identifying or realising that you were you were funnier than this guy, yeah, this middle-aged yeah. guy. Because some of my... We had to go to... Um, my grandfather was not a very nice man. And um, he had these big sort of army dues that we had to go to. And I always hated it. I really resented it. But I also, I, I really loved writing a, about um, that age of just when you're about to feel like a woman, that kind of 13, 14 years old. And... What I remember about it is that having to go to this sort of party in a big lawn and there being just so many men there because it was like an army thing and feeling suddenly, you know, I was in this kind of posh dress that was slightly shorter than, uh, and tighter than I was used to. And I remember it being a bit of a thing with my, with my mum that she really wasn't sure if I should wear such an adult dress and I, I just remember instantly feeling like the, the male gaze and feeling so self-conscious and it was the first time I sort of felt the energy of men look at me and that I was old enough to be, you know, considered like sexually attractive and I remember it just being a huge moment and it feeling very sort of overwhelming and sometimes it would sort of be, I felt like men were looking at me like, oh, are you, 
am I, are you old enough to fancy yes or no? You know, I was so just at that kind of age of, um, and, uh, and just how uncomfortable, but also thrilling it was, exhilarating feeling. Um, but then also at the same time, you know, constant criticism of my body. So it was very sort of confusing of, of like, well, you know, some people want it clearly, but also at the same time, other women usually saying, oh, you know, you, you're too big or whatever, or you don't want to get any bigger, or you have such a nice face if you just lost some weight, you know. <laughs> but um, but also looking back, you know, the the irony is, it's not it's obviously not about size, but I wasn't even big. So, um, yeah, and this, this is this sort of posh old man who was sort of holding court and um, being horrible to his wife, and he started telling this joke, and I... And I suddenly thought, oh, I know this. I know this joke. I've heard it. So I just said it. I just said the punchline. I didn't know what I was doing. And he was furious. And then, um, yeah, like, uh, there was a moment I was by the toilets and he just... I mean, I really exaggerated it for, like, comic effect Mm. in the book. But he, you know, he said to me, never, ever interrupt your elders, young lady, again. And he was furious. And I thought maybe he was going to hit me or something. I mean, it was really scary. I don't think he was, but that's how it felt. And, um... I remember like running away and just thinking, oh my God, like, this is, what have I done? This is like a superpower. You know, he was so angry. Um, I thought, I kind of thought I was helping, I think. I think it was like, (laughs) oh yeah, don't worry, I'll say it. Um, And I was just so relieved to be able to contribute. And I was at the grown-up table and I was, you know, 13 and I was like, oh, I I, I know this joke. (laughs) But he was furious and I, I I sort of joke that's how I got into comedy, which is sort of a joke, but... um, I like the idea that that's how it began. <laughs> Did you do drama when you went to um, university? Yeah, yeah. I I, um, I went to Warwick and um, the course was very... It was quite heavily sort of performance art, live mm. art scene and I was really into it. I just... That's what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to be like Marina Abramovich. So I don't quite know how I ended up in, like, mainstream comedy, to be honest. Um but the the first Edinburgh shows I did, which were quite weird and anarchic, they absolutely were based in that kind of devising of experimental theatre. Just that, but kind of... Uh, oh. Oh, oh, oh dog so sweet. Oh. That's so lovely. You've got that to help him. Yeah. What happened, oh. if it's OK to ask? He had a spinal stripe. Oh, so bless. Just, the back bit just stopped. Well, I think the cord's gone, Hello. Spinal cord. He's staring at squirrels. That's why he's got a crazy face on. Uh, wow. Well, oh, well, thank God the technology exists. He's yeah. not changed the dog alive. Good boy. Come on. Good as absolutely heartbreaking, isn't it? Oh, the poor little thing. Yeah, he's a black Labrador. He's got a. Yeah. He's got the two stabilizers. She thinks we're staring too much. Yeah, do you think so? And when did you start feeling that you were getting attention and offers of work? And From about 25, I've always kind of worked. Yeah. I've been really lucky. I, mean, I, had, I had about three years of shit jobs, mm. um, mostly working in shops. And, uh, yeah, from about 25, 26, I just was always was, you know, writing and creating stuff and, or in, in other people's things. I would like to bring us up to date with your career because I had Jamie Dimitri on this podcast. Oh, great. And Did he bring his dog? He didn't bring his dog. By the way, this is, this is from filming. I wouldn't <laughs> choose this. It just, I just don't have any remover. It's bright sort of yellow lemon nail varnish. It's all right. I was thinking it was quite chic. Well, I did this thing. Do you know the comedian Moan Rizwan? He painted them yellow. <laughs> Maybe I asked him to. I don't remember. We were doing this thing together and I suddenly realised it's, it's just coming off. It looks gross. I saw the... I, can I be honest? I saw the yellow nails. You spoiled it now. <laughs> because I thought... It made me think, oh, she's so cool and young and millennial. <laughs> Okay. She's got yellow nails. I'll take it all back. And we've met Cut at it this all very out. trendy coffee shop in Peckham. <laughs> She's got the yellow nails. She's got the yellow nails. And on. I've got remnants of a bit Kate Middleton ballet pink. <laughs> and um, you're holding a small fern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah no, so Stats Let's Flats. Yeah. I had Jamie Dimitri on this podcast, and I mean he's so charming. Oh, he's yeah. Um, but 
I discovered that show and I almost couldn't believe yeah, how brilliant it's it incredible, was and how it? brilliant you are because Carol is we all know Carol we've yeah, all yeah, worked yeah, yeah. with Carol we see Carol every day <laughs> and everything I mean as soon as you walked on and I saw the two blonde streets yeah. <laughs> every time yeah. you know when I wake up every day and I do my hair I think does it look a bit Carol <laughs> it's so funny you say that because the third series we changed we put clip-ins in before we were like and now they're, they're more prominent and we had to clear it with the producer and stuff it's like is this okay she's got like an extra streak I think she's got like a, maybe a fourth and it's even more prominent. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's... I'm so proud of it. I, I just love it. So we're all such good friends. It's such a sort of lovey cliche. But, like, we, we all just talk about how lucky we feel. Like, you know, we, we've all gone on to do other stuff. And we're all just, like, bereft. And we just know it's not ever going to be the same. Because it's like... We are, we've all got the same sense of humour. You know, we're all good friends. It, we, I think the episodes are almost too long because we were just improvising so much and we all just have this chemistry where we, no one sort of says, no one drops like a massive clangor. We just seem to yeah. have this kind of language that we understand of the show and, and um, I think this series is the best. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's bonkers. It's so, so funny. But yeah, it just feels like, I feel so grateful to be in something and actually think, God, this is creative and original mm. and weird and funny. And Jamie said to me... Um, he kept referencing, you know, the Apprentice candidates, which, I mean, I'm obsessed with. So I, I got it straight away what he wanted. And just all these sort of people from, like, 90s reality TV shows we talked about. So I completely got it. It's, you know, I guess it's a bit like The Office, isn't it? It's people who sort of think they're wacky, fascinating, you know. I mean, done with compassion, obviously. We're not punching down or anything. But, um, but just also, like... Oh, fascinating. But also what I love about it is I think it celebrates the kind of, you know, everyday weirdness. Like, um, yeah. I think when you hear people speak in real life, people do say really weird things and get words wrong. And, um, you know, I think real life is more surreal than we imagine when we're trying to write naturalistic dialogue. And I think he captures that really, really well. Just you know, the fact that Al lives in Birmingham and goes on the coach hey <laughs> it's never quite such a weird guy like who is he and knows Japanese I presume Jamie was familiar with you as a performer and wanted yeah. you involved well I gave him his first job really so we met um, I met him up at the Edinburgh Festival and he I think it's 2009 something like that and we um, had we were doing our sketch show, me and Anna Crilly, and we hired him and Tash, his sister, to, to write on our show. So we gave them their first sort of TV job, and then he was in our sketch show. And I remember thinking, my God, like, this kid's going to, you know... I remember saying to him, like, you're going to employ me one day, mate. This is... You're obscenely talented. I could just see it. And, uh, yeah, he did. So... I've known him since I've known him for about you know ten odd years, and um, and yeah, so it was just really exciting to 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 get it to be able to do it. It strikes me as quite collaborative. Oh as well. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really it's it's terrifying, but in some ways, um, I think it was that thing of improvising when the stakes are that high, where everyone's being so so funny. And, you know, it's won all these BAFTAs and so on. It, it does feel like extreme pressure that you're going to have to just sort of say something incredible, which is sort of exhausting and terrifying. But then at the end, the sense of accomplishment, I suddenly realised, God, I haven't actually felt that... Um, I'd been in this kind of blasé few years, maybe, of thinking, oh, no, you know what I'm doing, I'll just turn up and sort of do that silly voice that I'll do or whatever to suddenly think oh god yeah this is like the early days this is like at the beginning when you're adrenalized and it really feels like what you're doing is new and exciting and it matters and you really want to get it right and I hadn't felt like that in a while and I it, so it was kind of really exhilarating it's taken me all this time but I I would love to just carry on making weird comedy for the rest of my life but you know I don't know if I can afford to but I feel really <laughs> inspired by him that I can you know I think it's it's taken me it comes back to to childhood in many ways in that I think I I'm not very good at um 
saying no to things even now I struggle because I don't want people to be disappointed or to upset people or to have people go well, who do you think you are that you think you're too good for this thing um, but obviously that just ends that just makes me miserable and then I'm the one in it on TV <laughs> so I'm the one who ends up looking like I'm advocating for this when I'm not yeah. and it just makes me resentful but but it's difficult as well because I uh also feel so grateful for the to be working so i think it's a really tricky balance of being grateful and being sort of humble so come here Raymond. look katie <laughs> katie's <laughs> laughing at my dog what do you do to <laughs> i really enjoyed that laugh. I sometimes, when you've been through a really tough time, which I think you're still in yours, to be honest, and you oh will God, be for a while. do I seem like that? No, you don't, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this is me on the good day. <laughs> Although I did have to sleep in the O2. <laughs> don't forget. Because <laughs> my boiler's broken. <laughs> I did sleep under those big yellow things. <laughs> Sometimes, after you've experienced sort of prolonged grief, I, my experience was that when I'd laugh, I remember the first time I sort of laughed properly, because it felt like so long mm. since I'd laughed, and I just thought, oh, I've forgotten I could do that. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I found that it made me so grateful for small things, and there was a point where... So after the last sort of death and after the last, um, you know, the admin was out of the way and things had, and I was saying this to my siblings, once things had sort of started to sort of calm down, I think my body was so, was still expecting, you know, the, the adrenaline was still going and it was still expecting like a phone call to say someone else has died. It was still, mm. it was still expecting, you know, disaster, which is a very kind of post-traumatic way of being, I think, anyway. So I remember that, that, that it took about sort of six months for my body to really believe that there wasn't something awful coming. I mean, ironically, there, there was, and I had an operation about, I had to have like major surgery after my mum died three months after, which is also pretty traumatic and awful. And a tree fell down in front of my front door and I couldn't get into my, I was, so things did actually carry on happening weirdly. But um, I've reached a point now, yeah, where it's, it's I'm starting to have a nice time again and um, mm. I'm really grateful to have these kind of periods of that I feel okay and that I'm not feeling massively triggered and that it's just nice and um, doing nice things for myself yeah I'm really that it feels really amazing just to go somewhere and not to be glued to my phone or thinking the hospital's going to call this person's going to call um and I feel very protective of that of that piece, and mm. um, yeah, I mean, even but but it's 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 in some ways it's like uh, my tolerance. It's built my tolerance for everyday stress, but at the same time, it, it only takes lots of little small things to really tip me over the edge. You know, like the boiler breaking, and suddenly, I I, I associate. Um, it's funny. I remember when I went into deep shock. I was so cold all the time. And for some reason, when the boiler broke, I was so anxious about being cold because I associate it with being really traumatised. Mm. Uh, I don't know why, I just do. So I, I, I had a bit of a spin-out about, I won't be able to be warm, I won't be able to look after myself, I won't be able to, you know, like these basics, these sort of basic things I have to do to have good mental health, mm. for me, include, like, being warm, <laughs> fed, you know. Um so when I can't do that I get very panicked because I feel like I've got my sort of self-care down to such a sort of specific mm -hmm. exact thing I'm so good at it now not always but it's like I have these really basic requirements that if I don't do these things then I'm going to be in trouble um, so it's made life a bit simpler in some ways that I mean I think I said in the book I mean there was a day where I just like you know had a, had a really good peach and <laughs> I just remember thinking, like, this is the only good thing that's going to happen today. But that's okay. 
you know, I have to go to hospital now, but this peach was good. Um, so it has made me feel very grateful. Because there was a time, when a really dear friend of mine just lost someone very suddenly, really, really horrendous circumstances a few weeks ago. And um, we are, at the moment, going on these long, out, you know, three-hour walks, talking, talking, talking. And I can't believe that I... Um, it's given what happened to me real meaning because I genuinely can help her. And mm. I didn't know about you, but before this happened to me, I wouldn't have known what to have said. And I think yeah. some people have been a bit frightened of it and have yeah, kind yeah. of ignored her. And I've been right there, like, doesn't frighten me at all. Even when she's wailing, I don't feel remotely frightened. And at the same time, there's nothing you, you know, it's so ineffable, it's beyond words and all that. But she said to me the other day, she said, I re she said, you said this, this and this the other day and it really, really helped. Mm. And I just feel so, like, privileged to be able to be, A, to be well enough to start helping others I haven't been previously I've had to be like really selfish <laughs> just to get through it so the the fact that I'm in a place to help others is amazing and also it, it really helps me to yeah. help her and I just didn't even realize I had all this sort of it just gives you this wisdom doesn't it it's very specific wisdom there's like a, a big rave has just started up what's but, going um, on with the rave do you want to move again? I don't or, mind. Or we can head back. We'll walk up here. The rave started. A live band in the oh, park. Oh, it's James Brown. <laughs> How did you... Why did you uh, end up in this lovely part of London? No, I lived in Brixton for years and years. When I was... And it was a real laugh. Like, from about... You know, I was in my late 20s, early 30s. It was really fun. Times being in Brixton. So, um... I yeah I just saved up and bought this this little flat here but it's so my god like th things go wrong with this place every six months something breaks or goes wrong it's kind <laughs> of been a bit of a nightmare which way Katie that um, way I'm following you oh okay I just don't recognize this bit oh, it's all right let's, let's go, go out there. there I feel if we're in a clearing um, it's like in a movie when they get lost and find a clearing <laughs> and it's all right it's a bit Jurassic Park this bit <laughs> But it's really, it's like, I love my place, but it's really deceptively high maintenance. Yeah. Are you, um, you're, are you a perfectionist, Casey? Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, no, I am. I mean, I'm obsessive about things, definitely. Like, really, I get totally absorbed and obsessive about things. Are you someone who thinks, unless I can do it perfectly, I don't want to do this Oh, thing. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, for me, that's why I think the book took so long, because... I would, was honing my taste. I was reading loads, which is what I did before I started writing. It's funny because not, not, when I've been like talking about the book, not, not, people don't often ask me about like the, cra the, you know, the craft mm. of writing, which I love talking about because I feel like I've learned so much and improved so much as a writer. Mm. Um, I'm, going to this, I'm going to Cardiff Uni to talk to the MA students the creative writing which is like the thing I'm most excited about more than anything to do with TV at the moment to just sit in a room and just nerd out about favourite writers and stuff um, but anyway so uh, so I sort of read so much um, to help me sort of work out what my voice was a bit mm. more before entering into it and the more I would read you know incredible writing I would I would feel so intimidated mm. and then what I would write would be so far away from what I knew to be good writing that I'd sort of give up so it was like the more I knew the more my taste improved and my awareness of good writing improved mm. the shitter I would feel about my own writing because I had that sort of self-awareness of like oh god you know now I've read whatever it is this is terrible so I think my standards got higher yeah. Through kind of learning and then but the procrastination would kick in. But yeah, the starting is horrendous and I had real imposter syndrome. I think because, you know, I have this real thing about that I didn't go to, to that I'm not Oxbridge and I'm surrounded by people who did. And I had to talk to my friend about it for ages and he was like, Who did do English at Cambridge? So I was like, Well obviously I'm gonna just defer to everything and he was like he said, but what you have to understand is, I did English at Cambridge, yes, but you're more creative than me. 
Yeah. Like, you just are. From all our conversations spending time together, you have more ideas than me. And I could quote Virgil, but I actually think you have better ideas than me. And it was like, I don't know, it was like a real unlocking or something. Yeah, you need friends to remind you of that stuff because you can lose sight of your how others see you. Yeah, Just, yeah. And especially if, like us, you think everything you do is terrible. And Yeah, and I've always been arty. And I thought, actually, like, clinging on to that artistry is... Um, you know it's different it's a different skill to like studying a medieval poet and doing a dissertation on them so I was I was able to sort of go it's okay I've I just have to focus on what I'm good at and that's still valid oh Katie look at that dog what is it <laughs> it's a grey cloud isn't it do you know I've loved our walk yeah you enjoyed too. it what do you think of Raymond Katie I think he's adorable I could really see me with a Raymond. I just don't think it will practically work, but I feel really quite jealous that you get, like, a toy to play with every day. Well, what about if you sometimes... Would you like to maybe borrow him sometimes? Yeah, I'd love that. And take him round Peckham Rye. Oh, you heard that, didn't you, Raymond? You heard that you were going to have a, a godmum. Oh, would you, maybe you could be Raymond's godmother. <laughs> I'd love that. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.